Good morning. How y'all doing? So good to be here. Honored and delighted as always. Kind of a real privilege to be gathered with the people of God. Uh, we have a few visitors. My name is Brandon Watts. I get the crazy privilege of serving here as the lead pastor of this church plant, uh, an amazing church that it's so clear, according to Matthew 16, that Jesus, Matthew 28, that Jesus is building the church. And I'm just grateful to be able to be along for the ride. As we do every single Sunday, I try to, we try to say welcome and thank you for our first-time visitors for being with us. Um, and I just want to extend that welcome again. You guys could have worshipped anywhere today, uh, or you could have stayed home and, and watched TV, watched the Olympics. I, I don't know about y'all, but I have been all in on the Olympics Y'all could have stayed home and watched the Olympics today, so we're grateful that you guys decided to come and hang out with us. Uh, any opportunity I get to stand before you guys and, um, and preach the gospel, uh, it, it is nothing but God's grace. It's sheer grace. I mean, it's sheer grace that we woke up this morning, but I do not take these moments lightly. There's a few things I, I would like to just touch on really quickly before we jump into the word. Um, Gabe mentioned the space uh, and so I, I just want to unpack a little bit of where we are and what we're doing, because I know we announced it uh, last month, the beginning of last month. I know you guys are like, we're still cramming in this little space. What are you, what are you doing? We have started, um, we have the contractors in there, so we've already started the work. We had to knock out a few walls and put a couple of things. It is an old Curves building. I don't know if y'all know what Curves is, a workout building. Uh, and so we had to transform that into being a worship space. And so uh, I went in last night or yesterday, and we had the, the stages built. We got the sound area built and working out the kids' space and stuff. So we are actively working. The electricians are in there. Carpet people are in there. Uh, Deanna and Gabe are doing an amazing job just keeping everything running smoothly. So uh, we're not cramming in here because we have nowhere to go. Uh, we are just working on the space, trying to prepare it. So give us, give us a little, a couple more weeks. We're hoping to be in there. Don't hold us to this, but we're hoping to be in there by the 28th. So not this Sunday, uh, but the following Sunday. We're hoping to be into the new space, but we will uh, be able to confirm that next week once we talk with the contractor and see where we are. Are you guys excited about that, that space? I am personally deeply excited. Every time I go to, I don't know if you guys know the preparation that goes into getting this lounge to be a worship space, but it starts on Saturdays for us, picking up uh, the U-Haul, going to the storage, loading it with chairs, speakers, um, keyboards. That keyboard is about 1,000 pounds. Uh, and so it, it takes a lot of work to transform, you know, a bar sitting here, couches all in here. We do this every single Sunday. So the Sunday that we don't have to do that, I don't know about, see, I heard somebody <laughs> about to speak in tongues right there. Um, listen, I'm, we are going to be excited. Uh, and then, then it, gives us, it gives us the opportunity to do things that we can't do in this space. For example, we have a partnership with Young Life. Um, I don't know if you know what Young Life is, but it is a a parachurch ministry here in Bed-Stuy. Janelle, she's actually away at a Young Life camp. Uh, Janelle is over Young Life here in uh, Bed-Stuy. Patrick actually does some work with Young Life as well. And we, we partnered with them. We try to support them. And one of the ways that we're going to strengthen that partnership is every other Friday, they're going to move their club from a different part of Bed-Stuy to move it into our church. So every other Friday night, we'll have at least 15 to 20 young people from Bed-Stuy in our church. So we'll be able to use that building for more than just Sunday service. Um, and, and just to put on your radar, we are, we're working through small group stuff now, hoping to launch that in 
um, in October. A few of you have given uh, us access to use your space, and we're working on developing some of the leaders that will be leading our small groups. But every fourth Wednesday uh, of the month, we're trying to come together and do Bible study. And so uh, being able to have a space that we can do that is going to be extremely huge for us. And, and if I'm honest with you, I'm looking forward to Bible study. We will walk through all of the Bible. When I say all of the Bible, I mean Genesis 1 to Revelations 22. Uh, I don't mean every single verse. That'd be great if we could do that. But we're trying to hit major themes within the Bible, right? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation, Jesus coming back for us. So we'll be able to do that because we have a space. And then it just gives us endless opportunities. We want to do job fairs at the space and uh, just so many other things. And so be praying for that. We are trying to work on that space. So, so please be in prayer about that. And if you have time, giftings, any type of ability, please bring those with you so that we can help. We got to paint soon within the next week. We have to do a lot of painting. So uh, you don't need a lot of skill to be able to go up and down on a wall, maybe on the corners, but at least up in the middle. We'll, some of you that can't paint, we'll keep you in the middle of the wall. Um, but seriously, we, we need your help. So please, please, please. Um, see Gabe so that we can uh, get things moving. All right, eager to preach the word. Psalm 51 is where we'll be today. If you could grab your copies of God's word. Uh, as you guys are turning there, let me just give a shout out and a, a huge thank you. Amen. We're so happy to have you back. Uh, Janelle and Lionel are back. They just got married a couple of weeks ago. Can we thank God for Janelle and Lionel? I love it, man. We just announced that Kim Renati's got married. Now to see, how, how do you say it, Sinius? Sinius, to see them get married. It's just amazing. Uh, I, I say it all the time, you know, in a culture that uh, we see divorce happen at at least a 50% divorce rate in America, to see young people committing and strengthening their walk with one another is amazing. And then it's, there's, there's really no other way to see the picture of Jesus' love for his bride like a husband and a wife. And so I'm so grateful to have them back. Also want to say my mom is back today, y'all. Amen. Raising the roof. That's, that's so 1990, right? She, uh, she had knee replacement surgery. And uh, this morning, she, it was really touching. This morning, she, you know, she, we've been saying the entire time, man, I wish we had an elevator in the space. When you come back, like work hard because you got to come up those steps. And so she said she got uh, halfway up the steps, uh, and she felt like the woman with the issue of blood that, well, this is what she told me. She felt like the woman with the issue of blood that just was trying to get to Jesus. She got halfway up the steps, looked to the tops of, top of the steps, and said, I know Jesus is up there, so let me get up the rest of those steps. And so it's so good to have, uh, have her back. Last person I just want to mention, Pastor Kurt is with us today. Uh, raise your hand, Pastor Kurt. Pastor Kurt and his, his wife, Courtney, are with us. They are, he is an elder at our mother church, Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia. So it's so good to have him here. Um, I'm praying that he takes back a, a good report. I don't want to get rebuked by the elders in Philadelphia. Uh, no, grateful for him being with us. All right, Psalm 51. Um, after preaching last week about, about grace, nothing but grace is what we preached last week. Uh, I, I thought it was important to look at what it looks like to wrestle with your sin and how you, um, how we are supposed to confess and repent of sin. A lot of times people can walk away, hear a sermon on grace and be like, man, that's a license that I can do whatever I want. Uh, when in reality, it's not a license for you to do whatever you want. 
Uh, when you're transformed by Jesus, no one is comfortable in sin. Not when you've really met Jesus. Your appetite completely changes. Um, and, and so uh, it's good to look at what David, King David, says about his own sin. I'm going to read 1 through 17. Uh, y'all know how we do. We like to go line by line, verse by verse. Uh, it's going to be a little difficult to get through 17 verses, so I'm going to jump in and out of a few verses. But for contextual reasons, I'm going to read all the way 1 through uh, 17. All right, verse number one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and have done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O oh God, O oh God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud for your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips, for my mouth will teach and declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would have given it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. I'd like to preach for a few, from a few, for a few minutes from the topic entitled Dealing with Sin. Dealing with Sin. Let's go before the Lord. Uh, Lord, this morning as we attempt to engage your word, we do so acknowledging our desperate need for your Holy Spirit's working. My words will fall drastically short if your Holy Spirit does not blow and breathe on the words this morning. Father, I need the Holy Spirit to proclaim your word, to proclaim the gospel, but everybody in this room needs the Holy Spirit to even hear your word. And we pray that through your infallible, impeccable word that you would speak to us this morning. Father, some of us in here are wrestling with sin. I'm convinced of it. Many of us in here have sin that we've never confessed, sin that we've never told anybody, sin that we are consistently in, that we cannot break away from. Pray that this morning through your word that you would strengthen us and empower us to be able to remove sin out of our lives at least consistent sin out of our lives so that we can walk with you more deeply. Lord, use us today. Pray that Jesus Christ is glorified in our time. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Dealing with sin. On your way in this morning, you should have been greeted by our hospitality with, uh, with a smile and, and a small pebble uh, that they ask you to place into your shoe. I'm not going to ask how many of you placed it in your shoe. Uh, I know some of you ladies have on flip-flops. I should have brought tape so that you could tape it down at the bottom of your shoe. I didn't think about it, uh, or I would have done that, just saying. 
Um, but you should have been greeted with, with a pebble and a smile, and you should have been able to place that pebble into your shoe. Uh, and, and the reason I wanted to do that is because I wanted, by the way, I do have one in my shoe. I, I shouldn't have picked the, uh, the largest one that I could find in the bag because uh, I do feel a little bit uncomfortable up here with this in my shoe. But the reason I wanted to, to, to give you guys a pebble to put in your shoe is because I wanted it to be uncomfortable. People are asking me, why am I doing this? This is dumb. This is crazy. Why am I putting a pebble in my shoe? And I've been intentional not to tell anybody. I just said, place it in your shoe. Put it in your shoe. And my hope uh, and prayer is that you still have it in your shoe and you're uncomfortable. My guess is that some of you looked at the rock and was like, no, I'm not placing it in my shoe. In fact, there's two of them up here. I don't know if this is Chris and Tashina's, uh, but there's two of them up here. Uh, but, but, but some of you probably looked at it and was like, I'm, not, I'm just not participating. I'm not doing that. Uh, some of you probably put it in your shoe and uh, halfway through the worship service, you took it out of your shoe. Some of you probably uh, still have it in your shoe and it's uncomfortable. You're probably moving it around so that you can get it in a different space so that it is not uncomfortable. It always works its way back into an uncomfortable place. I don't know if you realize that, especially when you're walking out in the street and one gets in your shoe, always works its way back into an uncomfortable place. Or maybe you got numb. Maybe it's in your shoe and you forgot that it's even there. It's just sitting inside of your shoe. Uh, let, let me just say this for the record. You can keep, after you take it out of your shoe, we do not want it back. It's, it's, a, it's Epiphany's gift to you. You can keep that pebble. The pebble this morning represents sin in our life. And so I wanted you to wrestle with it. I wanted it to be uncomfortable at the bottom of your foot, even to the point where it probably hurt a little bit. I don't know if you got a sharp rock, if you got a smooth rock. I don't care if you got a big rock if, or, or a small one. Wherever, whatever size the sin is, my hope and prayer is that it's deeply, deeply uncomfortable for you. That's why I wanted you to have it in the entire worship set through the entire sermon so that you can say, man, this is what sin is supposed to feel like in my life. Unfortunately, many of us have sin in our lives, but we've gotten numb to it. Right? It's that rock in our shoe. We moved it around. We got it in a comfortable place. No one knows about it. We've tucked it away, and it's good. Right? It's good, so I don't have to be worried about it. But the truth is, pebbles in your shoe have the potential to slow your walk down with the Lord. They have the potential, even when you're walking with it. I don't know about y'all, but if I get a pebble in my shoe and I'm in the street, I don't care if it's 10,000 people around me. I'm stopping. I'm taking it out because it's just so uncomfortable. So many people are walking around spiritually with pebbles in their shoe. Muhammad Ali, the great theologian Muhammad Ali said, <laughs> y'all know I do that all the time. He said, it isn't the mountains that wear you out. That's not, that's not what wears me out. But it's the pebbles in our shoes that consistently wear us out. Is sin in your life uncomfortable? Is it uncomfortable to the point where you are like, I desperately got to get this out of my life. I got to get this out of my shoe. In this morning's text, we see a man named David who is the king of Israel who was wrestling right now with a pebble in his shoe. Now, maybe that's not contextually accurate. Wrestling with a pebble in his sandal. I'm sure they wore sandals in that time. Just to keep in context where we are, in our scripture today, Psalm 51, we see David, which is the king of Israel. David would have, we got Psalm 51 because David was walking on the roof of his house, of his beautiful house. He's walking on the roof and he looks over and he sees a woman named Bathsheba. Bathsheba is bathing on the top of our roof, on, on top of his roof roof on the top of her roof and he's overwhelmed with desire overwhelmed with a unhealthy passion and what does he do he sends for her and 
commands her, summons her to come into his chambers. You guys know the story. If you have any upbringing, if you don't, welcome. Thank you. We're glad you're here. If you have no idea of what story I'm talking about. But if you're familiar with the story, you know what happened next. He summons her to his house, to his chambers. And what does he do? He sleeps with her. Now, here's the hard part about it. Her husband, Uriah, is out in battle for Israel. One of his loyal soldiers, he knows that she's married, yet he sleeps with Bathsheba. And a few days later, she, he hears two words that he does not want to hear. She sends word back to the king saying, I'm pregnant. He then tries to cover up his sin, right? He, he sends for the general Joab of his army. He sends for him and tells him, hey, send Uriah back home. He needs to spend a few days at home. A few days at home, you know, from, from being in battle with your wife, surely he's going to sleep with his wife She's going to think that, or he's going to think that that's his child that she's pregnant with. Um, but, but unfortunately, that doesn't happen. Uriah is so loyal. He gets back to the house, and he gets to the kingdom. And what does he do? Scripture tells us in 2 Samuel 11 that he sleeps at the king's door. Doesn't even go home. King says, why are you sleeping at my door? He says, how can I go and sleep with my wife, eat and drink while my fellow soldiers are in the field sleeping. So he's a loyal, loyal soldier. And in that moment, sure, the king is like, well, what am I supposed to do next? He sends him back out to the field, back out to battle with a note for the general Joab. And he tells him, put Uriah on the front line in the hottest part of battle. And when the battle starts, have your men retreat. Have your men back up so that he can be killed. Well, that plan seemed to work in man's eyes. Uriah was killed. Of course, David thinks that the plan has successfully worked. He would look like a nice king by marrying this grieving widow. Unfortunately, the last verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11, where this story can be found, says this displeased the Lord. So he may have hid it from some people, but the Lord saw everything. Or several months later, and I'm going somewhere with this, several months later, king, uh, uh, prophet Nathan comes to the king David, and he comes to him the very next chapter. Now, commentator says there's a few months between 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel chapter 12. The prophet Nathan comes to David, tells him this story. In fact, I'd like to just read a piece of the story so that I you don't think I'm making this up. The Nathan, the prophet, comes to the king and says this. Second Samuel 12, he says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. By the way, keep that in mind. Nathan didn't just have a hunch about this. The Lord sent the prophet Nathan to David. He says this. He came to him and said this story to him. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had, had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but a little lamb. It says, which he had brought. And he brought it up with him, and it grew up with him and his children. And, he used to, and it used to eat the morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. And so this poor man had one lamb. Stay with me. Poor man had one lamb that he deeply loved. Look at what the story says. Nathan goes on to tell David. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then King David's anger 
arose greatly and kindled against this man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no pity. Verse number seven. This is what Nathan says to David after David gives that response. Nathan says, you are that man. And so what we get as a result of of 2 Samuel chapter 12 is we get Psalm 51. Because Nathan confronted David, the king of Israel, which he could have got killed for, coming into the king's presence, calling him out on his sin. He confronts him with his sin. Because of 2 Samuel, what we get is... Psalm 51. In fact, the subscription above Psalm 51 literally says a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so what we're seeing now is David's response to the conversation with Nathan. But keep in mind, this isn't an automatic response. This is months later. And so maybe you're sitting in here and you're like, man, I have sin in my life. That That story, maybe that type of scandalous story isn't my exact sin, but there's something similar. There's something that all of us in this room are wrestling with, with we probably didn't tell anybody. There's something that all of us wish that we could recover, that we could erase. But the truth of the matter is, how are you wrestling with your sin? In our text this morning, we get to see how David wrestled with his sin. My hope is that we would walk through this this passage carefully and look at how we should be dealing with our sin. David, in this moment, has the pebble in his shoe. Let's consider the passage before us. Verse number one. Look at David's response. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies. Blot out my transgressions. I'd like to lift up the first two words. Have mercy. Notice that when David is confronted with his sin, observe that he appeals to mercy. In fact, the New, uh, the, the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, reads like this. It says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. And so when David is confronted with his sin, he appeals to grace and he appeals to mercy. Why does he do this? Because David realizes and he understands that he cannot appeal to justice. In this moment, David cannot appeal to the law. He cannot appeal to merit. He cannot appeal to works. He cannot appeal to achievement. Grace and mercy is the only thing he can hold on to. In the midst of being confronted with his sin, in a moment where he is caught red-handed, the only thing he pleads for is mercy. The only thing he pleads for is grace. In fact, when he's told this story in 2 Samuel chapter 12, I just read it. But David's response to the story about the rich man taking the poor man's one little precious lamb, his response is, as sure as the Lord lives, that man deserves to die. And so David is thinking in his mind, I deserve to die for this treachery that I just committed. But in the midst of me deserving to die, the only thing I can hold on to is God's mercy and God's Grace. I'm not sure how you feel or where you are in here. I don't know how you decide to wrestle with your sin. The only way we can wrestle with our sin accurately is through mercy and through grace. We can't try to work this thing up. We can't try to overdo the bad with the good. Only thing we have is grace through Jesus Christ. Psalm 130 verse number three says, Oh Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who can stand before you? 
Who can stand before the Lord if he, marks your, if he marked your sin? How can you stand before God? David is aware that he cannot stand before God based on his own merit. This is why we worship Jesus, because the, Jesus is the answer to Psalm 130, verse 3. Right. How can, if he marks iniquity, how can we stand before him? We can stand before him because of Jesus. Because we stand before him, not based on our works, not based on our good, not based on our bad, purely based on the perfection of Jesus Christ. And so David pleads for mercy. He pleads for grace. David does not try to earn his way back to God's favor. Many of us try to do that, right? We wrestle with sin and we're like, man, I just got to earn this thing back. It's not the gospel. The gospel says you cannot earn it back. If God sees the one little sin in your life, He'll destroy you. So we got to plead for mercy. That's found in Jesus. we got to plead for grace. Some of us have this, this weighing system as it relates to your good and your bad. And so I do bad, 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 bad. And as long as before I stand before the Lord, I have to do good, 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 good. And when I stand before the Lord, I stand with this system and I say, God, I know there's some bad here, but look at the good. It outweighs the bad. Unfortunately, if God sees this, we're done. The crazy thing about the holiness of God, we just sang the song that says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The holiness of God can't even see the good that you do because that's an offense to him. And so both of these, you try to play this outweighing my good outweighs my bad system. You will be crushed. What we need is perfection. And we get that in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And so he pleads, have mercy on me, O God. He pleads for grace. How do you plead? Where do you, what do you plead for in the moment where you're caught into sin? Do you plead for grace and do you plead for mercy? There's something else I want you to observe about verse number one, though. Observe that when, Nathan, when, Daniel, when David is caught in this sin, David accepts responsibility. Look at two words that stick out to me in verse number one. Have mercy on me. At the latter part of that verse, it says, Blot out my transgressions. David doesn't shift the blame here. David takes full responsibility for his sin. How many of us take responsibility for our sin? We say, no, no, no. I'll take a little responsibility, but no, they got to take some responsibility as well. No, David owns up fully. I'm the man in, in Nathan's story. Fully owns up to where he's at. He realizes that the pebble is in his shoe. He's not pointing to anybody else's pebble. He's pointing to his own. It's my transgressions. Notice the word here, my. He says it's mine. I own this. And so that's why he's pleading for mercy. That's why he's pleading for grace. He doesn't blame Bathsheba. It could have been easy. That's what many of us do, especially dudes. We'll be like, well, Bathsheba shouldn't have been, been bathing on that roof. You know, <laughs> The, the water was glistening all over her body. Y'all remember that? I don't know if y'all remember that. that. That's from Martin. You so crazy. Stand up. Water's glistening all over her body. Anyway, I have no clue where that came from. That just popped in. It's back out. We're back. He doesn't blame Bathsheba. He doesn't say, man, she was bathing. She should have been in the house bathing. Why is she on her roof bathing? bathing? She should be in the house. She has to take some responsibility. Doesn't say that. He owns up, it's my transgression. He's the, he doesn't do like Adam did in Genesis chapter 3. He doesn't say, well, it was the woman you gave me. He doesn't blame anybody else. He doesn't do like Eve did, the serpent deceived me. No, it's mine. 
It's my transgression. How many of us do that when it comes to our sin? I'll be honest. I'm quick to shift the blame. When my wife comes to me, which she often does, and, and, and shows me my own sin, which she often does, which she often does, which she often does, <laughs> when she comes to me and says, man, here's some sin I see in your life. She didn't quite say it like that. She usually, you know, the eyebrows go and she goes right in on me. But when she comes to me and shows me and presents me, exposes to me my sin, the first thing I want to do is I feel conviction, but I want her to, I want her to share the conviction. So I say, well, you did this <laughs> and you did that. That is blame shifting. David doesn't do that here. David looks at his sin and says, I'm that man. He didn't say, no, Nathan, I'm not the man. This is the man. I was doing this, but she was the woman. Call her. No, I own it. My sin, my transgression. And so you have to do that when it comes to your sin. Don't shift the blame. Especially you men. We don't do that. Don't shift the blame to somebody else. We own up. It's my sin. I confess. It's mine. I own it. You cannot confess and repent of sin that you, won't, or that you aren't willing to own yourself. You can't shift the blame on this. And so David doesn't do that. He says it's my transgression. Although he lived in denial for months between 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel chapter 12, for months he covered this thing up. But once he's outed by Nathan, then he owns it. It, it, it. I don't know how you are, but I feel like many of us try to hide our sin as though God doesn't see our sin. Like, like God is asleep, like he wakes up with crust in his eyes. Holy Spirit, what are you doing? Did you fall asleep too? Jesus, I thought you died for that sin. What happened? They're not blaming each other. He's awake and he sees everything we do. So you can't hide. Every, every now and then I come into my house and my, my sons will try to hide, uh, hide from me. I hear them snickering. Usually my youngest son picks the, 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 uh, the kitchen table. He'll go up underneath of the kitchen table. In my mind, I'm like, I can see you. It's broad daylight outside. You got on a white t-shirt and, and tidy whiteies. I, I can see you. But he does this thing where he hides under the table and he does this little snickering thing. And I play along. I walk around the house and go, where are you? Where are you? And I'm like, clearly I know where you are. Us hiding our sin from God is like my 10-year-old sitting under the kitchen table snickering. That is what it's like trying to hide. You cannot hide your sin from God. Out yourself. Own up to the sin. Why? Because God sees all of it. After he owns his sin, verse number one, my transgression. After he owns his sin, look at what he does. This rocked me. I, I mean, I literally had to chew on this all week. Verse number two, after owning his sin, he says this. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. Now, you would think that after David owns his sin, you would think that he would plead with the Lord to remove the consequence of the sin. Why am I saying that? Because when he is originally confronted by Nathan in verse number 14, Nathan says, because you did this deed and you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born shall die. So the child that... Bathsheba was pregnant with, the Lord just said through Nathan that that child is going to die. Now, if I'm David, after I own my sin, the next thing I'm doing is, Lord, remove this consequence. Let the child live. David doesn't do that. David's more concerned with the sin being removed than he is the consequence. Think about that in our lives. What we do is we may own our sin or we may not own our sin, but we're definitely going to plead with the Lord to remove that consequence. 
David doesn't plead with the Lord to remove the consequence. David, it almost is like he seems to lose sight of the fact that the consequence is there. He dreads the punishment of the sin, but he dreads the sin even more than the punishment. That is what we do when it comes to repentance. What we do is we really are saying sorry because we don't want the consequence. We're not saying sorry because we actually want to own that sin. We want that sin out of our lives. There's two type of repentance that the scripture often uh, shows us. There's attrition repentance. This is a fake repentance. This is not a real repentance. This is, I'm saying sorry. This isn't heartfelt. I'm saying sorry because of potential punishment. And so I'm really not sorry. I just don't want to be punished for the sin. And so that's, a, that's attrition repentance, not real repentance. But then there's another repentance called contrition repentance. That's heartfelt. That's what we get in the text today. A genuine, genuine, I'm sorry. I have sinned against the Lord. I am deeply, deeply sorry. In fact, verse number 17 says, a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. That is what we get in Psalm 51. We do not get, I'm sorry because of the consequence. Verse 2, he doesn't even mention the consequence. He purely is saying, Lord, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. If I'm David, verse number two, we would have sat in, sat in here and been preaching, Lord, remove the consequence. Let the baby live. Let the child live. David doesn't do that. But yet that's how we do with our sin. David dreaded the consequence, but he dreaded even more the sin that was in his life. Are you disgusted with your own sin? Or are you more disgusted with the consequence of the sin? We need to be fully acquainted with our sin, and we need to be pleading with the Lord. Lord, remove the sin. Notice he says, wash me. He's not looking to wash himself. He's not looking. This isn't, I'm, I just need to bathe this thing off. No, if the Lord doesn't wash him from his sin, he will not be clean. And so he says, Lord, you wash me because no other washing will suffice. Only if you put your hands on my dirty sin can this thing be cleansed. But yet we try to run hard, right? We run hard to try to cover up and, and try to make this sin right. No, Lord, wash me. Lord, deal with my funky sin. All of us in this room have it. Nobody in this room from the youngest to the oldest, the tallest to the shortest, nobody in this room is sinless except Jesus Christ, who is in this room as well. Only one that's sinless. Only one that's able to say, I'm not going to cast a rock because I'm able to cast a rock because I have no sin. Verse number three. So he said in verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse three, for I know my transgression. Again, he owns it. And my sin, again, he owns it, is ever before me. David says here that my sin is ever before me. This must be our prayer when it comes to sin. We must pray that our sin is ever before us. Do you know how many people are operating in sin and have no clue that it's actually sin? David is like, mm, don't let that be me. Put my sin before me. Because you not feeling conviction over your, your sin, you not being aware of your sin, that's judgment. Grace is, I feel conviction. Grace is, oh man, I feel uncomfortable. And some of you, I'm willing to bet that some of you that are operating in a lifestyle, a cycle full of sin, if you've trusted Jesus, I'm willing to bet that he's placed a conviction there with the sin. We go on in our lives, and if we go on in our lives and never ever get to a place where we feel conviction, our sin may not ever be before us. We have to pray, Lord, 
there may be sin in my life, put it before me. Put it ever before me. We just never considered that it was actually sin. When your sin is able to be known before you, this is a sign of God's grace. Notice something else about him saying that my sin is before me. When he says my sin is before me, he's not moving too quickly to forget the sin. What do I mean by that? We live in this culture where we're like, man, he'll throw my sins in the sea of forgetfulness. And so I'll never, ever remember that sin. The problem with that type of thinking is if we forget our sins, then what we're doing is forgetting the faithfulness of our God that brought us out of that sin. We're forgetting how faithful God was in the midst of that. Not to mention that verse isn't even in the Bible. I'll throw your sins in the sea of forgetfulness. What people are referring to there is Micah 7, 19, where it says he will again have compassion on us. He will tread over our iniquities. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea, period. Doesn't say in the sea of forgetfulness. But if we can conclude from that verse that God is able to forget sin, maybe he is. You're not. You don't have that ability. Don't try to act like, man, I forgot about that sin. Oh, no, you remember your sin. And God is faithful in that. And so God is able to forget it. You're not. Verse number four. Now, verse number four is another linchpin verse as it relates to confession and repentance. Look at verse number four. Against you, you alone have I sinned. Then he says, and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Let me lift up the A part of that verse. Against you. And you alone have I sinned. How can David say that? What an, um, what an amazing statement that David makes here. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Did David not sin against Bathsheba? Did he not sin against Uriah? Did his sin not impact his son? Which is, a, I don't even have time to deal with how our sins can affect the next generation. His, his sin impacted his son And to go further than that and make it more broader than that, it impacted all of Israel, that their king, that the Holy Spirit appointed to be king, their king fell into sin. It would have impacted the whole kingdom. So how can David here say against you and you alone have I sinned? Yet in this text, we see that the primary concern of David was not the sin against others, but it was the sin against God. Think about this in your life. Most of us don't want to fall into sin because we don't want to offend another person. How many of us have as the chief concern that I do not want to sin against God? See, what keeps me from cheating on my wife is not that I'm, I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to hurt her. Yes, that's there, but that's, that's, that's a secondary concern. Primary concern is I don't want to defame the name of my God. How many of us have that thinking when it comes to sin? We think, man, I don't want to offend that person. I don't want to offend. And sometimes, if I'm honest, the secondary concern may keep you from the sin, but we must fight hard so that the primary concern, the primary reason why we don't fall with temptation is because we don't want to sin against God. David said against you, and you alone have I sinned, does not mention Bathsheba, does not mention Uriah. He shows us here that it's, The reason I can't sin, the reason I don't want to fall, the reason I need you to remove this sin is because it's getting in my way of my relationship with you and you alone. Have your relationship with God in front of you against the Lord. When you fall, when you sin, 
You're defaming the name of Jesus Christ. You're hindering your walk with Jesus Christ. That has to be our chief concern. His treachery against God is what's on his mind, not his sin against his brother, his sin against his sister. That's appropriate. You need to feel that conviction. But the primary conviction is I don't want to sin against God the Father. And the secondary is because I don't want to sin against others. Verse number five, I'm running out of time here. Verse number five. This is why I said we can't get through all 17 verses. Verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. What David is not saying here, David is not suggesting to us that he was born in some type of scandalous situation. He's not suggesting that his unwed mother and his unwed father were at the creep spot in a Nissan in the back of the knee. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying I was born out of some adulterous affair. What he's showing us here, which all of us need to understand about our sin, he's showing us that the sin is there at birth. And so the pebble in your shoe didn't get placed in his shoe when he sinned with Bathsheba. The pebble in his shoe was there when he first was born. So what this is talking about is inherited sin. Charles Hatton Spurgeon talks about in his commentary on this passage, he says the black stream leads him to the black fountain. In other words, the stream isn't the sin, but it's the fountain that's the actual sin. What he's suggesting to us today is the moment you were born, you were born in sin. You were shaping in iniquity. This is why we don't teach kids how to sin. You don't have to teach them how to sin. You do not have to. Before you grab the toy and said mine, before you bit another kid in the sandbox, you were already a sinner. So what he's not showing us here is behavior. He's showing us inherited this is my nature. So this isn't some, man, I fell, I messed up, oops, I messed up here. No, he's saying, this is who I am. This is a part of what I do. This is just a part of my life, how I'm wired, my DNA. This is why we so desperately need Jesus every single day, because all of us have a bent towards sin, all of us. All of us are infected and and tainted with it. I'm not the only one. David's not the only one that's going to suggest this sin. Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says, this is a trustworthy saying and deserving of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul, the writer of so many letters in the New Testament, almost 75% of the New Testament is written by somebody that says, I'm acquainted with my sin. I'm a chief of sinners. Isaiah says the same thing in in Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 5. He says, woe is to me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And so over and over again, we see huge figures that probably have a better spiritual walk than you and I. I mean, David stops the sun. You've never done that. Let's just be honest. You've never done that. Paul wrote 75% of the New Testament. You didn't write a verse. David is the king of Israel. Most of us in in this room aren't the king of anything. Yet, Over and over again, men that had a relationship with the Lord said, I'm a sinner. So you walk out of here and go, man, he can't be talking to me. I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. What we do is we say I'm a good person based on the neighbor we have next to us, and we know the sin in his life. I'm better than him. Mm -mm. David says, behold, I was born in iniquity, and I was shaped in sin. And sin did my mother conceive me at birth before I took a breath at conception I was, already, I was already broken. If you don't understand that sin is inherited, 
What you'll do with your sin is walk away and try to control it by behavior. Doesn't work. You ever try to control your sin? I'm just going to stop doing that. Doesn't work. You don't stop doing it. What you need is a transformed heart, and David is going to show us that. That is why it's impossible for us to get it right when it comes to our relationship, our salvation with God. We cannot do it based on merit, based on works. Why can't we do it? Because it was over before it started. At conception, it was already over. Before you had the ability to grab the toy and say, mine, you were already selfish. It just, your behavior just exposes what's really in you. And so scripture shows us, David says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sinned that my mother conceived me. Let's keep moving. I got to skip ahead, uh, but I'm going to read everything. Behold, you delight in truth and in, in your inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place, place. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy, of, joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my transgression. Look how he keeps owning it, my transgressions. Verse number 10, create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. David isn't asking for his old heart to be made new. He's not asking for a band-aid over his sick heart. He's not asking for a tune-up for his heart. He's saying, take this thing out of me and put a new one in my heart. This is what we're getting here is Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. I will remove the heart of stone and place in you a heart of flesh. Heart of stone is cold, it's hard, it can't be penetrated, but a heart of flesh is warm, it's soft, and it can be molded by the Lord. He says, take that filthy heart out of me. Create me a new one. That's what we need. We don't need behavior modification. We need a new heart. You don't need new friends so that you can stop sinning. It's my friends. If I just stop hanging around with them, I'll be able to stop sinning. No, you need a new heart. You need a new heart that can be found only when Jesus Christ transforms your life. And then you'll look at sin and be like, I can't believe I used to do that. I hate that sin. David is like, no, don't fix the old heart. It's like going to a, a car dealer, wanting a new car, but you get a car with 100,000 miles on it. It's no comparison to getting a new car. He, he needs a new, a brand new heart. Does not need you to fix up his old one. And so you overcoming your sin doesn't mean put a Band-Aid over the heart. Doesn't mean just try to cover up the behavior. No, it means you need to be transformed. You need a brand new heart. Let's keep going. Verse number 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. I have no time to deal with take not your Holy Spirit from me. This, I'm going to quickly say this and keep moving. This does not mean, David is not saying, when he says take not your Holy Spirit, he's not saying don't remove salvation from me. I, t- I read verse after verse last week and told you we are eternally secure, cannot lose your salvation. You trust in Jesus, he don't back off of that. He's not an Indian giver. If you trusted Jesus, you, he, he seals you until the day of redemption. What does Jesus say? None can pluck them out of my hand. And so David's not concerned with falling out of grace with the Lord. David, the Holy Spirit, what David is showing us in this verse is that the Holy Spirit is tied to his kingship. So David is saying, don't take the kingdom from me. He's not saying, don't let me lose my salvation. It's not biblical. It's not consistent with the rest of the scriptures. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God. 
O God of my salvation. Notice twice he says salvation. He's concerned. He's pushing his salvation. He's encouraging himself. And my tongue will sing aloud with your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would have given it. That's why I said it's not by behavior. Because David just said, and I've got my finger here. That means I'm going to keep going. David just said, if I could fix this thing by giving you something, I would have given it. So you can't work your way to this thing. He said, I would have gave it. Verse 16, B part. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. We'll land the plane on verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. What you need over your sin is brokenness. Do you know how many people rejoice in their sin? Believers are okay, are comfortable with their sin, got the rock in their shoe, the pebbles in their shoe, and they're okay with it. He says, no, break my spirit, break my heart, a broken and contrite heart. You will not despise. Our inner spirit is crushed, should be crushed with conviction. When you confess your sin and when you repent of your sin, do you try to fool others? Do you try to control the sin? Do you try to explain it away? Do you try to justify it? You need a broken spirit. You need a broken heart over your sin. I'm not sure where you are in here, but the, the beautiful thing in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, First John will tell us that if you confess your sin, he's able to forgive you. He's just and able to forgive you and purify you from all righteousness. So you're able to come before, Jesus has secured the right for you to come before God with your filthiness and say, remove that out of my life. Jesus has secured that right. The, the fact that God is able to forgive you of your sin is proof that the cross worked over 2,000 years ago. And so why do we try to hide what Jesus has died for? Jesus died for your sin, yet we try to hide it. He died to remove the pebble out of your shoe, yet we want to keep it in our shoe. We just want it in a comfortable spot so that it's not hurting. I don't want to get a blister there, so I'll move it over here. No, remove the pebble out of your shoe. How do we do that? Broken and contrite heart. He will not despise a broken and a contrite heart. I'd like to press pause here for a moment. Because I really genuinely believe, and and I was praying about this last night, I genuinely believe that there's somebody that walked into the door today with their church face on, but you know deep inside there's ongoing sin in your life. Like you know it. Like you come every single week, you help set up, you help break down, you consistently give, you consistently are a part, but yet you're you're dying inside because there's sin in your life. I'd like to give that person a chance to get it right, a chance to say, God, I need you to I need you to break my spirit. I need this heart of mine to be restored. I've sinned against others. I've sinned against you. And Chris, you can come and play something soft. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against others. But yet I'm just operating. I'm just going through the emotions. You need a broken and you need a contrite heart. Every head bowed. And every eye closed. If that is you in this room, just know that God was the first initiator in dealing with your sin. Like he already took a step towards you by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place. The sin that you've committed 
apart from Jesus, you deserve death. You deserve eternal punishment. But yet through Jesus, we get grace and we get mercy. If that's you in this room, I want you to wrestle well today. I don't want you to walk out of here with the church face on, acting like it's a normal Sunday. My hope and prayer for you today is that that rock would get bigger in your life. You would feel so uncomfortable that you will literally stop, take the shoe off, and throw the shoe away. Like you'll wrestle so seriously with your sin that you'll do whatever it takes to get rid of it out of your life. Do not sit in here and wrestle with what God has died for. Jesus, God in the flesh, fully man, fully God, died for your sins, yet we are okay to keep it in our shoe. If that's you, every head bowed and every eye closed, I simply want you to slip your hand in the air. Nothing spooky. But if you have sin in your life that you know needs to be confessed of, slip your hand in the air. I see those hands. The beauty in this thing is 1 John 1, 9. If you confess that sin today, he promises that he's able and he's just to forgive you of that sin. It's about five or six hands in the air. It's about five or six hands in the air. These people want restored, renewed, transformed lives. My heart and prayer today for you is that you would confess it. Confess it to God, but I also would go so far as to say, to talk to somebody else in this room about it, or maybe not in this room, somebody that trusted Jesus, talk with them about the sin. Why am I saying talk with them? Because you need accountability. Not that accountability saves everything, but it can help you. And we need help with our sin. That is what the church is for. Why are we gathering? We don't gather here every Sunday morning just because we want to see each other and we want to wax eloquent about the scriptures. No, we come in here every week because you need to build a relationship with somebody else so that you can say, I'm broken. I've fallen. Let me pray for you that have raised your hand. You don't even have to step forward. I don't even want to put you on blast. Jesus knows and he's able to forgive you. Father, I pray for these folks that have raised their hands. Would you cleanse them of their sin? Only in the gospel are we able to be grieved over sin, yet rejoice in a mighty Savior. We are thankful, O oh God, for Jesus Christ. Thankful that he's given us the ability to come before you and confess our sin. Would you give them, surround them by believers that they can confide in that won't spread their business, but somebody that will hold them accountable for their own sin. I also pray for those that are in this room that don't even realize and know that they're in sin. Would you grace us with letting our sin be ever before us? Grace us with that. The most gracious thing you can do is show us our sin. And let us be broken over it. Father, we, we trust you, Lord. We wouldn't gather here weekly. We'd do something else. We wouldn't gather here weekly if we didn't trust that you're able to wash us. If you don't wash us, we can't be washed. If you don't cleanse us, we can't be cleansed. We'll walk out filthy, creating a new heart in us, a clean heart. Thank you, O oh God, 
for your word, that's able to convict us and pierce our souls. Thank you for that. It's in Jesus' mighty name we do pray. Amen. I don't want to call these people, but I feel an urge. There's somebody in here as well that does not know Jesus. And so you want to pray to confess sin. What we need to pray for is that Jesus would be central in your life. That he, the one who is able to forgive sins. Jesus said that the son of man is able to forgive sins. The one that is able to forgive sins, that Jesus is standing before you today. I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want to do anything spooky. I don't need to call you up here and spit all over you. I simply want to offer you today Jesus Christ. The one who is the sustainer of life. The one that will bring your faith to completion on judgment day. Do not walk out of here if you do not know Jesus. Standing before God the Father without Jesus Christ is suicide. It's, it's, it's going to be a long day, but standing before him, pointing at Jesus, saying, here's my ticket in. That's a beautiful day. If you don't know Jesus, I'd ask that you slip your hand in the air today as well. If you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, you know that you're not a believer. You know you haven't trusted him. You know you haven't lived according to his word. I pray that you would give your life to Jesus today. If you don't know Jesus, could you slip your hand in the air? No judgment. We all had to slip our hand in the air at one point. If you don't know Jesus, would you give him your life today? Anybody? Amen.